Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Together with Delta, they're putting 5G into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information. From the Delta Sky Club to the Jet Bridge, this is elevating customer experience. This is Delta with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Last spring, my friend Stephanie and I had a chance to travel to Rome as part of her research trip. And as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? Most people don't think about their space as an Airbnb, but hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey everyone, welcome to Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of intimate interviews with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso, thank you for tuning in. Today on the show we have a true Hollywood legend and actor, Alan Arkin. Born in Brooklyn to David and Beatrice, a painter and teacher respectively, Arkin knew what he wanted to do with his life at the age of five. Five, you know, the age where most of us are learning basic addition. Arkin was destined to be in front of the camera, entertaining. But before he could work in Hollywood, he honed his comedic skills at the pioneering Second City in Chicago. What you find in talking to Arkin and researching his biography is that his career trajectory is especially unusual. There's hardly ever a clear equation when it comes to being a creative in this world. But Arkin's path is especially fascinating, nearly getting caught up in the rage of McCarthyism and the Hollywood blacklist. Only to then land a role in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, which he received a Best Actor nomination for. Throughout it all, Arkin has remained disciplined and principled. He loves to work, he hates the industry, he religiously meditates, and is incredibly terrified of a world in which Donald Trump is in the Oval Office. He's also just really incredibly funny and honest and thoughtful. The same humor and profundity Arkin brings to his roles, he brings to this conversation you're about to hear. When we spoke last week on the phone, he was at his home in Canada. He's up north whenever he can be. Our talk was pretty sprawling, touching on everything from his great work in The In-Laws, Glengarry, Glen Ross, and so many more, to his friendship with J.D. Salinger, whom he now plays in the infinitely genius show BoJack Horseman. So, finally, here is Alan Arkin. (laughs) 
in 1967, you did an interview with Roger Ebert,、um, and it was right after you received the Oscar nomination for "The Russians Are Coming." And you wrote, and you and, and you told Roger, "I gotta keep busy. I'm not happy unless I'm working on two, three things." Yeah, that sounds like me. Then、uh, I don't remember the quote, but it sounds like it very well could have been. <laughs> yeah,、uh, I, it was certainly a, a day without doing something creative was a complete failure to me for many, many years.、Uh, I don't thank God feel that way anymore.、Uh, I'm、uh, very happy、uh, spending a day cooking, looking out the window, and.、Uh, Hanging out with my wife and or my my、uh, my dear friends,、uh, that's that's a good day to me these days. I don't care whether I'm being creative or not, or, or whether I'm being what most people would like to think of as being creative. I imagine that was especially true. You know, I, I only want to briefly talk about this because I know you hate talking about the terriers. <laughs> no, I, I just tired. I'm just tired of it. Yeah. Not, so, not, so, so, it was a wonderful time.、Uh, I made a friend for life from it.、Uh, Eric Darling became a friend for my entire life, and、uh, it was an entry into a lot of things. It made made me enough money so I could coast for a couple of years and look for acting work. So I have no problem with、uh, what transpired. It just as I get tired, tired of talking about so, it. So let's. I want to talk about something. That you have not talked about before with them, like, what do you have a specific memory? Something that you think about every now and then. I was like, oh, okay, that was nice, or that was that was a particularly telling moment in my early. You were in your twenties then, right? Yeah, or, or pretty early twenties. Right, right. And you're touring, you're touring around the world, and and doing the thing that you you're doing a different profession than you said you were going to do at age five. Right, and I guess I'm just fascinated or interested in a moment where you're like, "Oh man, I this is not what I should be doing," but man, it's nice that I I did it, and okay, I can. Oh move yeah,、on. I I,、uh, I was through the first plane rides we'd ever had. We were we were、uh, flying all over the place in first class, and that was incredibly exciting. People in our in our.、Uh, Social strata didn't fly in airplanes in those days, so that was wildly exciting. Going to foreign countries and being treated pretty well—that、uh, was wildly exciting.、Uh, uh, and be, being on stage and performing well was also wonderfully exciting. When we cooked, we were really, really good.、Uh, there's an album of ours、uh, that was a, a concert we did at the Olympia Theater in Paris. That、uh, I still love.、Uh, we just caught fire that night, and, and uh, uh, it was very, very exciting. Yeah, that, that, the memory of that night stays very, very vivid in my mind, and and my sixty-year friendship with Eric Darling was also stays very, very dear to my mind. In the midst all,、uh, in the midst of all this, your father was being accused of being a communist, right? Yeah, by the LA school system of all people,、uh, and he took the stance along with a bunch of other、uh, teachers that they, they didn't have any right to question his political beliefs. He, he he said, "Have I done anything illegal? Have I done anything wrong? What am I being accused of?" Nobody had the answers for him, so he said, "I'm not answering your questions." 
He got fired and couldn't get a steady job for about 15 years and simultaneously sued the Los Angeles Board of Education and ultimately won. But he didn't win until after he had died. Uh, he had uh, extraordinary uh, principles. He was a very, very principled human being. Did you adopt some of those? Uh, I like to think so. I hope I did. <laughs> like what? Well, I got I got uh, called up in front of the House on American Activities Committee, uh, and I had never been particularly interested in politics or, or organizations, and I remain so to this day. I don't like organizations much, and uh, I, I got called up because I my lawyers I said I I'd be happy to talk to them. I said I've never done anything. I haven't belonged to anything, so I'll be happy to talk to them. He said, what if they talk to you about your parents? And I said, well, I'm not going to talk about my parents. Uh, uh, I, uh, that, that would turn me into a, like a Nazi kid. Uh, and I said, I'm not going to talk about my parents. Not that I knew anything, but I just was not about to talk about to my parents in front of the House of American Activities Committee. And they said, well, in that case, you're going to have to take the Fifth Amendment. And I said, oh, great. That's, that's good. There goes my career. There goes my life, and I said, but but I didn't see any alternative. And uh, the morning of the uh, my hearing, my lawyer told me to stay home and don't come in. I said, I'll get I'll get nailed for contempt of Congress. Are you crazy? And he said, stay by the phone, don't come in. So I took his advice. I said, my son Adam was about six months old. I held him in my arms, sweating and pacing, and uh, waited waited for a phone call from him. And at about 11:30, uh, he called me and said, "It's over." I said, "What do you mean? What happened?" He said, "I can't tell you." And that's the last I ever heard of what transpired. I have no idea what happened to this day. But it was, I was willing to put my. It could have been my life. People were being put in jail. Uh, I had no idea what was going to transpire, but I put myself on the line for my parents, and uh, I'm very happy I did it. There have been a couple of other occasions where I've had to do similar things to that in my life, so I feel like I'm I'm pretty good at uh, putting my money where my mouth is. What is that period of like for creative types when people are getting called up to the House of Un-American Activities? I, I've, I've, my only understanding of it are some of the things I've, uh, you know, I've read, and a couple of the movies made about that era. The Trumbo thing was pretty accurate, and that's, but he was one of the fortunate ones. He could make a living. A lot of people that just couldn't make a living that weren't up to his talent and uh, just went by the wayside. Uh, I remember a guy named. Connie Bromberg wrote a play about his father, J. Edward Bromberg, who was uh, one of the actors who was blacklisted. Who was, his life just turned into shambles. I, I think that happened to a lot of people. There was an enormous amount of. There was. Uh, it, it's. It was uh, uh, vaguely similar to what's going on now. There was a lot of paranoia in the country and a lot of what felt like schizophrenic behavior, uh, like what was going on culturally in movies particularly. It was the most white bread, boring, uh, complacent stuff, Gidget and uh, and surf uh, surfing movies and blah, blah, blah. Um, 
And on the other hand, was this nightmare of thinking that uh, the country could turn into a fascist state at any given moment. Uh, it had a similar um, feeling to what's going on now, except I think it's worse now. Well, in the 50s, it was a particular one seg- segment of society. Now it's everybody. Uh, it, it's an incredibly complex, I think, dangerous time. Now. Do you think Trumpness is worse than McCarthyism? Uh, y- y- yeah. Uh, Trump, uh, McCarthyism was affecting uh one segment of the population uh Trumpness is affecting everybody mm. and, and it could be it could be an international um uh, effect that you know uh <laughs> this is terrifying to hear from someone who has lived through uh what you have uh well I mean, a lot of people have lived through a lot worse than me i mean it was scary but uh not not really life threatening is that is that a moment in time where you felt okay? Well, the, Chicago is not the ideal place. I'd rather be in New York or LA, but perhaps this is good for me. Yeah, well, I I I went to Chicago in a, virtually in a state of despair, thinking that I would have to say goodbye to a uh, in quotes big career, a career on Broadway, a career in film. <clears throat> And uh, I bit the bullet. I wasn't getting any offers anywhere else. So I said, what the hell? And I went there, and I it became a kind of paradise. And immediately as I, when I got there, I was we had workshops every afternoon. We'd hang around and talk about the show. After the show, the shows were incredibly inventive and wonderful, and I was working with an extraordinary group of people. So uh, it, it was two years of uh, of exquisite uh, immersion in uh, the craft I had wanted to participate in since I was five, and I was almost thirty at that point. How were you at improv? I was I I, I was terrible initially. <laughs> I, I don't know why he hired me. Paul Sills must have had an instinct that I that I that I didn't have because for the first couple of months I thought I was going to get fired because I just wasn't any good. Uh, and then, uh, uh, but I was dogged enough and determined enough so that I kept trying things and trying things and trying things, and finally came up with a character that w- whatever I did was funny. What was the first character? I don't remember. I remember the, what the whole series of them were, but I can't remember which. One. My memory is is uh, rapidly fading, which I'm enjoying wholeheartedly. I can't remember. <laughs> I remember a lot of things now, but it's wonderful. That's <laughs> yeah, it's delightful. It's 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 delightful. Is that is that sarcasm, or are you being completely honest? No, I'm being completely honest. I'm trying to avoid sarcasm in my life as much as humanly possible. What somebody told me the meaning of the word uh, sarcasm a few years ago, I said, "Oh man, that's." Terrible! I got that's something to be avoided. <laughs> Why are you glad that your memory is fading? Well, well because it's, uh, a lot of responsibilities I don't have to deal with anymore. <laughs> Did you take out the garbage? I forgot all about it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm absolutely fine. Did you manage, remember to call so and so? No, I forgot completely about it. <laughs> I'm at an age now where it's considered derogatory to forget everything. <laughs> and I'm taking full advantage of it. 
Yeah, I think, but I don't know. The fact that there's a knowingness to it, I think you are uh, gaming the system a little bit. <laughs> is is there another reason you enjoy forgetting? Because there are just stuff you don't want to remember anymore. No, I I don't think I didn't have that kind of. Uh, I don't have that kind of uh, nightmare in my in my life that I have to. Uh, Forget. No, I don't have any. I don't have any trouble thinking back on things that transpired that were hard or or, or even dangerous. No, that's, it's not that. It's just. But the, the funny thing is, is I find myself. One of the strange things about getting older is I find myself remembering word for word song lyrics to songs I never knew. Figure that one out. Songs I didn't pay any attention to, didn't like, and I'm remembering them wholesale. Song after song after song, I can I can I can sing now perfectly. When I'm forgetting things uh, that have a degree of importance. And thinking about my own future, I guess that's something to look forward to. The random, the random uh, knowing of lyrics. Well, maybe the possibility. You know, I think everybody's everybody's obviously different, but uh, it's wonderful to look forward to to change because that's the only thing we have any real handle on in, in this world. The only thing that's uh, that's a constant that we know is going to happen. Things are going to change. I don't know if we have a handle on change though. No, I, th- I, don't, I, I, I shouldn't have said that. We don't have a handle on it. Uh, a handle on the way you deal with it is what I meant to say. And uh, you, do you, do you deal with it well? I've been working on it for about 50 years. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think I handle it fairly well. Um, I think I handle it fairly well. Uh, it, it doesn't tend to frighten me. Most change, anyway. And how about the change from Second City to acting in movies? It was, I wanted it so badly that I didn't have as much fun as I would have liked to have had. Uh, I got to work with Norman Jewison, which was uh, a constant uh, lesson and a constant exquisite joy. Every director on the planet could learn from Norman Jewison on how to conduct oneself on a set and how to deal with a cast, how to deal with a town and which one was working with. It was a glory. My first experience in film was just glorious, and uh, everybody since has had to measure up to his his uh, uh, his leadership abilities. Was there a movie in that early age where you thought, "Oh, okay, I'm doing this movie, and and I'm comfortable doing it, and I'm doing it well." Doing it well. Uh, I I don't I don't know if I've ever said that. I, I can say that I, I I think that I've said on a lot of occasions I think this is the best I can do, okay. but I don't know if it's any. But I never know if it's any good or not. Uh, I you, don't know who you, has got the courage to actually say that. Are you that hard on yourself? Uh, I don't I, I don't think I don't know if it's my right to say it's good or bad. I I, I don't know if it's anybody's right to say it's good or bad. Uh, I, I, I feel like I can, I've said it works. I feel like that works. Uh, I feel like sometimes I haven't embarrassed myself. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I've been able to say it's the best I can do. I guess in looking at something afterwards, a long time afterwards, I can sometimes say that was pretty good. But I, I get disappointed in what I see, 
of my own work a lot too. You get disappointed. Yeah. Are you disappointed about like the Russians are coming or? No, they... not that. I, I I wish I could. I was. I wish I was that good now. I feel like in a lot of ways I peaked with my first movie. <laughs> did Did you feel like you peaked at the time? Uh, no. I just I had a prayer. I said, "Please let this be good enough so that I get another film someday." That was my my uh, my hope. Oh, uh, and then it was too good, Alan. Well, I don't know if it was too. Um, I, see, I, feel, you, I feel good about it when I look at it. No, I I only mean that in like that you say you <laughs> you peaked, then you set yourself up for uh to not hit that. Do, do you think you never hit that again? That sort of that, that. What I did in the Russians are coming. Yeah. Uh, I can look at maybe a half a dozen things I've done and feel pretty good about it. I think maybe six or eight things. Uh, <laughs> do, do you want to go over the one? I mean, the you one. talk to people in this in this arena all the time. Don't you hear the same thing from people? You hear people say that they, they thought they were great. You ever hear people saying that about their work? Um, here's what I hear. I hear sometimes a little more faith in their abilities, and I faith hear, in their abilities. Yeah, I do. Sometimes I hear that. Sometimes I hear arrogance. Sometimes I hear insecurity. Um, but also, I think I think it's tough because in these conversations, when something is recorded or you're being interviewed, as you are now, or an actor is uh, all the time. Th- I don't know how honest they can be with someone else about this. Cause, well, maybe you should be talking to my wife that she would give more honest appraisal like, of like what it, I think of my abilities than I do. If it'll make you feel better, next week we can have your, your wife on the podcast. And we, <laughs> That'd be fine. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think you've been completely forthright to the extent that you can. But yeah, I think if you came on this podcast and said, yeah, I'm a great actor, and, and, I, and I've been brilliant in all these roles, I would think, wow, he's kind of a jackass. I, I have never considered my, I, I, I have never considered myself a great actor. Uh, I consider myself lucky to be working. I, I feel like I came in at a time when I could uh, spread my wings more than people can do now. Uh, everybody's put into a niche of what their ba- immediate background is, and if they veer off from that, they get picketed. Um, which, I, I, from a sociological standpoint, maybe have a validity, but it certainly doesn't do much to spreading your wings creatively. Mm. Uh, I don't think. Uh, do you want to hear my theory? Sure. The you saying or not knowing you're a great actor is why you're a great actor. That's just well, my, it's very sweet of you. But, that's just uh, my theory. And again, I'm not. This is not. I don't know a lot of people. I don't know a lot of people that would share your enthusiasm. I, I think people <laughs> think I'm. Um, I, I, I think there are some people who think I'm talented. I think a lot of people don't think I have any ability at all. Who? Okay. Uh, who? Who do you think thinks of Alan Arkin as? You know who Alan Arkin is. He's a he's a, he's a talentless schmuck. Well, I don't. I don't know if anybody goes that far, but there's got to be somebody around that feels that people people feel everything about everything these days and don't have any make any bones about sharing it. I'm, I'm my 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 greatest joy. One of my greatest joys comes when somebody stops me in the street 
and said, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, I don't mean to imply that it's a constant, uh, constant occurrence, but if somebody stops you on the street and says, thank you, they said, for what? I said, you, I, I learned something from this uh, performance in this. Uh, I, I grew or I got a, a sense of community out of it. Uh, that, that's, my, that's my greatest joy. Uh, it hasn't happened very many times, but it's always been enormously gratifying when that happens. Uh, I, uh, when I when I did Hard as Only Hunter, I had a couple of people say to me, "I had blind people in my, I have deaf people in my family, and I've always been very, very impatient with them, and I never understood what they were going through. And I saw you moving, and it made me feel more compassion for my my uh, my relatives. I had I've had other people come up to me and said." I was prejudiced against Puerto Ricans, and then I saw your movie Poppy, and it, it, it helped me get over my my uh, fear of or or my dislike of Puerto Ricans. Thank you for that. That, that that's been enormously meaningful to me. But to have somebody come up and say you're great, that, that does nothing. I don't. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't care. I I want to. I, I I'm interested in moving people. I'm not interested in. I'm more interested in moving people than I am in uh, so-called accolades. I don't, I don't need that kind of ego. I'm sure I need a lot of ego boosting, but I don't need that kind of ego boosting. Why do you think we get bogged down in talking about accolades or um, thinking about stuff other than what you're talking about? What, what you're talking about really, right, is not just empathy, but personal growth and learning and moving someone to their core those are things like the oscars don't come around and someone says and this year uh nominated for best moving performance the performance that helped people or that you know that's that's not what it's about or at least that's not what the industry is about no, because no, it's about selling tickets, not about consciousness. It's about horse race. Horse races um, gets a lot of excitement going on. <clears throat> Who gives a damn? With what you know, it, it, when, when I read headlines that say such and such a movie knocks blah 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 out of the box, what the hell is that? If you move <laughs> by something, you're affected by it. You're not. What does knocking somebody out of the box have to do with anything? It's not. It's not a high jump. It's not a hundred yard dash. Uh, <laughs> it's. A, it's. A, a, I, I knew that when I was five years old. I would come out of certain movies being deeply affected. I felt my life had been, it was my school. I'd come out of a movie feeling my life had been changed by seeing a performance. My life had been changed by seeing, getting a glimpse of a specific culture. Uh, and it still is. I can watch movies from different cultures now and, get, and have a window open to a whole new way of experiencing life. Uh, not not in American films very much anymore, or or right now anyway. But uh, I come out of a lot of movies saying, "Wow, my God, what an adventurous way to examine the human condition!" My God, um, shocked, moved, my oh, my, and and it's exemplified to me by the amount of close-ups in American movies. It's a nightmare. Close-ups are watching. You watch a movie now in an American film. It's at least fifty percent close-ups, and you don't learn anything from close-ups. All you know, all you learn is what the head is doing. 
The head is not where an experience lies. Looking at somebody's head. You look at somebody's head in relationship to what their arms are doing, to what their body is doing, and to what this person is doing in relationship to somebody else. You don't get a sense of relationship in close-ups. Do you think the emphasis on close-ups in American cinema is driven by ego? I, yeah, uh, uh, ego and inexperience and and uh, the prevalence of engineering over artistry. Uh, it's like I look at an American film now. I say, oh, uh, we've, we've we've cut to a master. That means somebody's coming into a room or leaving a room. They never masters are never used. I can I can very often tell now what. Uh, my relationship is going to, with the director is going to be by seeing where the camera is being placed uh, and how much coverage there's going to be. Um, it, it's it's like if you have a million close-ups, you don't have to worry about an event. You can manufacture the event after the fact. That means you don't trust what you're watching. You don't trust the event before your eyes. I remember movies with, with like, seeing Judy Holliday, the, the most recent, Judy Holliday and Catherine Hepburn in a movie where it was Judy Holliday's, I think, first film. Catherine Hepburn must have done 50 films by this time. The camera, it was a two-shot on Judy Holliday for 10 minutes. The camera doesn't move. And that's not because the director's an idiot or doesn't, or doesn't, uh, care about camera motion is because he knows that it doesn't need to move. It doesn't need to move. The event is taking care of itself. Like in the early days when there was a tap dancing movie, you'd have a moving master so you could see the feet of the people dancing. The feet of people doing a tap dance is where the is where the life of the thing is. But you don't want to just look at the feet. You want to look at the body in relationship to the feet. You look at old tap dancing movies, they're moving masters, so you see the whole person. You look at movies about dancing now, you see a, a, a melange, a hodgepodge of close-ups and, and fascinating... Uh, uh, beautifully edited stuff that has nothing to do with the dance. And I feel like that's what's happened most of the time in the United States. Do you chalk any of this up to general attention span? Yeah, uh, sound bites. I, I think I, like television's been responsible for a lot of a lot of crimes against humanity. Uh, <laughs> one of one of the biggest ones is that. It has taken the possibility of reflection out of the human experience. Uh, anybody with a grain of wisdom or or, or or ability to think, when somebody's when asked a question, so oh that's an interesting question. Not, not happens all the time, but happens sometimes. So that's an interesting question. Let me think about that. And there's like a three second pause. You're not, it's not allowed until you have to have an opinion about everything under the sun, whether you know anything about it or not, immediately. And that's it's reflection is a crucial, crucial aspect of, of human experience, and it's television doesn't allow it because it's uh, money is being flushed down the grain if uh, if if uh, you wait three seconds for an answer. Mm. Uh- we should um, we, let's let's hopscotch back to something a little happier and only marginally happier. Uh, but you were talking about leaving the theater 
at a young age and being completely moved by a movie. What movie, I'm thinking about me personally, what movie in your filmography, filmography for me comes to mind when I think, I watched that and I left it changed. I was not the same person before and after. And the one that immediately comes to mind is Glengarry Glen Ross. Why? In what way were you changed? I was um, depressed. More depressed. (laughs) (laughs) It's a depressing film. I was in a restaurant last year with my wife, and we went out to the parking lot to get our car, and a guy comes running, a big guy, comes running over and bangs on the window of my car. It scared the hell out of me. And uh, he said, open the window. He said, I'm safe. I'm okay. It's okay. I'm okay. There was something in his tone that made me feel comfortable enough to open the window. He says, he said, I, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross changed my life. He says, that was a great movie. He says, it changed me so much. He said, I went out and become, I, became a, I became a real estate salesman. I said, are you crazy? Are you crazy? I said, the movie was designed to get everybody a million miles away from becoming a real estate salesman. He says, I like danger. He says, I was in the Marines before that. So he said, I'm, not, I'm, he says, I'm comfortable with danger. So I said, okay, well, good luck to you. Something tells me that I'm not sure he, um, he grasped the... Uh, the meaning of the movie very much. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was an amazing experience. Uh, very, very intense experience for everybody. I'm sure. But was it nerve wracking on set? I mean, it's strange to think that like Jack Lemmon would get nervous at that point in his career. But was it was it just everyone? Was no one at ease on there? Well, yeah, you you, you want. To a certain extent, develops the coloration of the script one's doing, at least to a degree. And uh, the coloration of that script was people in a very precarious position uh, all the way through. And uh, on top of that, the dialogue, I, I didn't speak to this to a lot of people, but I'm sure everybody would agree that the dialogue was harder to learn than anything we'd ever learned in our lives. Uh, we rehearsed for a month, and then after after the month was up, Ed Harris and I, when we weren't working together, most of my stuff was with Ed. We we would run to the dressing room and run the stuff and run and run and run all day long, every day. It was a murderously difficult dialogue because uh, you're not allowed any mistakes in that. Uh, he had the right to insist that every syllable was said exactly as written, so we had to do it. And we, I, we sometimes have a line that would be, for example, I, 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 and you'd have to get all three of those in. If not, they'd stop the scene. You have to start over again, so it was murder. It was like a, it was like a musician playing Schoenberg. Uh, you don't know what you've got until it's all over. Uh, and then after it was over, uh, we breathed a sigh of relief and watched the film in its final stage. I said, wow, this really works. Uh, Jamie did a really a hell of a job with it, and he did. He did a wonderful job putting it together. I can't tell you how reassuring it is that you and Ed Harris and, and everyone on set is like doubting, like they're, they're frightened and they're intimidated. It's reassuring because all every single one of you um, has done. I'm not. I'm not going to compliment you anymore, Alan. But you've all done what I would I can consider. Handle, I can handle it. <laughs> can you handle it? Uh, yeah. um, you've all done impressive work. So it's just to hear that even from 
from Jack Lemmon or Kevin Spacey or Al Pacino that they were like, God, how am I going to get these lines out? How am I going to make this dialogue work? It sh- I, just, I just think it shows, like, it doesn't matter where you're at in your career, there's always new, really hard challenges. Yeah. You know, no, I, I, I guess there's, there are some people who, for, for whom it's probably easy, but uh, I, I don't know who they I don't know. I don't know if I've ever worked with those people. I don't think you want to, right? I want to, these days I want to work people who are capable of having a good time, having fun, enjoying themselves. That's my main concern. Uh, I, I don't want to be tortured. I, I, don't, I, I want to have, like, my, one of the great, most of the great things out of Jean Renoir's mouth have been uh, quotes that you can remember for the rest of your life. One of the quotes of his that I absolutely love is when he said, he said, I used to have a great message to give the world. He said, now I just want to send people my love. And uh, the funny thing is, I think that's the, the greatest message you can give anybody. Is love? To give people your love. It's, that's, that's, I, think, I don't think there's a greater message you can leave people with. Mm. You're talking about being working with people that are having a good time, and I and I have to ask you this because I'm just fascinated by it. the The fact that you're in BoJack Horseman, um, makes me. I'm just ah, like how how did that happen? I, it's just so random and so beautiful that you're in it because I, <laughs> I, I you don't know you understand I love that show so much. Well, I'm glad. And when you appeared, I was like, "What? What are you? Are you really? He likes yeah, this." Yeah, I made the offer to me. I thought it, and I thought it was kind of gloriously nuts. So I, I said yes, and also I knew J.D. Salinger, so I thought it would be fun to to uh, to spend some time pretending I was in. You knew Salinger? Yeah, <clears throat> I wouldn't say well, but my guess is that nobody knew him very well. What was he like in the time you spent with him? He was witty. Incredibly acerbic, frighteningly self-protective, and he'd invite us up to his place in New Hampshire. And we, a couple of times we went up, and by the third hour up there, he was clear to us that he felt that he made a mistake, and that <laughs> we'd be much happier if we had let, if we leave. So we'd uh, we. <laughs> leave as soon as it was politically uh, viable. That's just that. So he wanted you around for a certain amount of time, and then eventually he thought, well, I think I want to go back to being alone. Yeah, that's what the impression was. The the most fascinating thing about him, well, he loved movies, for one thing. He's fascinated and loved films. But about his writing, he, uh, he had a... A safe, a, a safe that must have been six feet high and four feet wide that looked like it could have been part of a bank that contained the writings uh, that he'd done that nobody was ever going to see in his lifetime. Uh, very, very protective of his work. And, and he had a, a kind of way of looking at his characters as if they had nothing to do with him, as if they existed apart from his writing. That was very interesting. Do you see that same detachment 
in your own work? My detachment from the characters? Yeah. I don't think so. I, I can see the roots of most of the characters I play in, in my own past, in my own life. Uh, almost all of them. Uh, I, I, I've never examined it that way, but I think uh, I, I could trace trace them back <clears throat> to pieces of myself that I, that I know pretty well. You said once that... Uh... I identify with people who don't know what they're talking about and would be happy to give advice to anybody who comes along. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Those are my favorite characters. <laughs> my favorite people I've ever played have been exactly like that. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think it speaks very highly of me, but, but I love these guys. The guy in, uh, in uh, Little Miss Sunshine um, who was... The uh, the ancestor of a character I played in uh, a movie called Joshua Then and Now, which was I think one of the few times I completely fell in love with the character uh, I was playing, and uh, I have a movie coming out in next year. It's another variation on that theme. Do do you think you don't know what you're talking about? I don't know if I do or not. I, it feels like I do, but I have no idea what other people are thinking. <laughs> that's that's kind of astonishing to me that that uh, like you're 82, right? Yeah. So at 82, I, I just I, I I always get the impression that that uh, the older you get, the more certain you become of things. That's a fallacy. The, the 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 older I get, the more comfortable I am with the idea that everything is a state of complete flux and can change on a dime. Uh, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with that. My my idea of an expert these days, like when I teach a workshop, which I don't do so much anymore. I, I taught a lot of improv workshops. I said, I tell them that if you, you want somebody come in and um, be a landscape guard, you're looking for a landscape guard. The guy comes in and, and uh, he looks around the property and he says, yeah, well, I know what to do. He said, we'll put some push shrubbery in here. Shrubbery right here against the house is going to look beautiful. We'll put some, why don't we put a little piece of lawn in here and let's get some trees over here. We'll get some nice deciduous trees here and, and, and uh, I'll draw you up a plan. I'll come back tomorrow the next day. So, oh, that guy really knows what he's talking about. He knows. And then two hours later, a guy comes in and I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, I don't know. I said, I got to look up the place. I got to find out what you have. I got to find out whether you have acid or alkaline soil. I got to find see how much water you have here, whether it's going to drain properly, where it's going to drain to. Uh, I want to see where the sun is coming, where the shade is coming. I want to see what. Well, and we got to talk about whether you want sun coming in your windows or whether you, whether you want shade coming. Well, I got to look around. I don't know. That's the guy I'm going to end up trusting. The guy who doesn't know. Who's got to. Uh, somebody, I, I know if somebody says to me, this is the way things are, I know I'm dealing with a raving lunatic and to, I, I want to run the other way <laughs> as quickly as possible. The Trump is a good example of that. This is the way things are. He tells you exactly the way things are. This is the way things are and uh, uh, I want to run the other way.
as humanly possible. Do you buy that there's any chance that he wins this election? Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure people were having the same conversation in the 20s when people were laughing like hell at Hitler. He was this butt of a lot of jokes, the funny little man with the mustache. Uh, who the hell knows? I don't know. I know people are certainly not listening to his platform because he ain't got one. Uh, they, they, if anything, they're, they're listening to the rage, and they're listening to and a lot of people. Uh, a, a, a lot of people are in a state of rage hmm. in this in our country now. It's it's uh, it, hearing you. I, I'm reminded of this thing you said. This was during Johnson's presidency before Nixon. And um, you said, it's difficult to think of the times we're living in now as bringing forth satire. It's a whole different nation under Johnson. There's got to be change, but you don't have the feeling it's coming. We're either got to get somebody very good as president or somebody very bad. I said said that? Yeah, you said that. Where did I say that? You said that in the Chicago Sometimes with Roger Ebert in 1967. Is that accurate for now? Is that is that a fair? Do you think do you think we have to elect someone very bad, i.e., Trump, to have change? Uh, I, I I can't. I, I don't know how to make predict. I'm not a predicting um, person. Uh, I hope that's not true. <clears throat> I hope that uh, things can uh, find some kind of semblance of sanity in the next few years. Uh, and 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 we find our way back to a state of. Uh, there was a couple of days after the World Trade, World Trade Center went down where there was a kind of calm that fell over the country, and a, a sense I had that welcome to the world. This is what most of, much of the world has experienced through a lot of history. We've been spared that kind of thing. And I thought if it's a wake-up call for Americans to feel like they're part of a world situation. And uh, for a couple of days it happened. There was an enormous pouring, outpouring of compassion and love and feeling from around the world and a, and a sense of shock and awe and, um, and people wondering who they were and what had happened and wandering around. And then, and then the... The, the 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 flags went up and the and the, the rage took over and uh, there we've remained ever since. Do you, do you think that's because compassion is hard to sustain? It, it is hard to sustain, but it's crucial. It has to be. There's no alternative. There's absolutely no alternative. Anything else is is chaos and destruction. Uh, it, it 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 must be. It has to be. I believe you when you say that. I I I just wish. Um... Well, I mean the, the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, I revere. Uh, uh, I have never heard a bitter, angry word about the Chinese from this man. The Chinese have ruined his country, taken his over his country, tortured millions of people, and I've never heard a bitter, angry word come out of this man's mouth. Uh, and 
I don't know how he does it, but this is a man that's more and more revered. He's going to be remembered long after whatever's going on in China goes down the drain. Nobody's going to remember a person from China. His name is going to go down in history as being one of the great men for hundreds of years, one of the greatest men on the planet. You're talking about people not thinking about death and not not thinking about it enough, rather, or they're afraid of it or they're running away from it. And I just want to know, are, are, you, are you comfortable with it? I, I, I pre, pretty much so, I think. My, my own, recently, my only concern was the, uh, if I go before my wife, uh, her, her um, what she's, what's going to transpire for her. I'm, I'm more concerned with her if, if and when I go first than, than I am for myself. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I've, uh, uh, I feel like I still have something to do. I don't know what it is, but it's, it doesn't eat at me like it used to. Um, I still feel like I have a little bit of something left to do, but uh, doesn't eat at me. But you're okay with with the end. I I don't I I don't really have, having meditated for fifty years. My connection with uh, stuff other than this just walking around um, plane of existence has uh, has grown into be something something more. So I, I have a fairly good sense that this is not what it's all about. Uh, I mean, if anybody says this is what it's all about, they're insane because it's a big universe out there. They, well, they just they just found something like twelve hundred new galaxies. Yeah, that's that, that's twelve hundred new <laughs> galaxies. That's frightening. Yeah. <laughs> How do you encompass that? And how do and ha- having found that out, how do you say that this is it? How do you say that this? And when you say this is it, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say this is it? What is what? What What are you talking about? Like uh, another thing the Dalai Lama did that fascinates me is every year he has a convocation of scientists at Dharamsala, and um, he's fascinated by science, always has been. And he said many times that if science proves Buddhism to be wrong, he says, I'm going with science, which is an extraordinary thing for the religious head of a country to to, to declare. Um, but anyway, 20 years ago, he said to this convocation of sciences, he says, do you suppose, he says, uh, that it's possible to change one's DNA or is it immutable? And they all said, no, 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 DNA is immutable. That, that doesn't change. That's the way you are. That's the way things are. Well, this year, they've changed their mind. They've recognized that DNA is changeable, that we can change our DNA. And that's a, that's a big deal. If we can change our DNA, we can change, <laughs> what, what can't we change? What can't we, what can't we, uh, what can't we address? It's what true. can we uh, put our minds to and, and rectify? So, so you believe at the end of this that there's something more? Um, 
belief is a loaded word for me. Okay. Uh, I don't like the word belief anymore. Belief uh, suggests things that you would like to be true. And most of the, most of the, uh, the wars of the world have been fought to substantiate belief systems, which is a system of thought that you would like to be true and you don't know if it is or not. Uh, my experience tells me that there is something more. I have experienced things that, that lead me to believe that there is more than this just as walking around reality. Uh, I, I, I use the word belief by mistake. Uh, my experience tells me that there, there is more than just this walking around the reality. Belief would mean I'd like it to be true. Experience means that I have experienced things that lead me to suspect that uh, there is more. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to write something about it. I got about 60 pages and then I stopped. I haven't, I haven't been able to go any further. But um, Well, I hope, I hope you do write it because my, my gut response is going to be, well, I believe you. <laughs> well, you you haven't experienced anything except my talking about stuff, so you have no reason to to take it any further than believing it, which is a wish for it to be true. Well, then perhaps in due time I will have uh, I'll experience it, and then yeah. Well, you, you have to want to. That's true. Yeah. But some people do experience that without wanting it to, without wanting it to be. Uh, in, in talking to people about these subjects, I find that when I talk long enough, almost everybody I talk to starts talking about experiences they've had that they can't put any kind of logical answer to. And I, I once talked to one of my teachers about that. And I said, is that true? He, said, he says, yeah. He says, he says, sooner or later, everybody has something that connects them with something. He says, look at it this way. He says, imagine, uh, imagine a cylinder with a hole, a little hole in it. And imagine inside that cylinder, there's another cylinder also with a little hole in it. And those two cylinders continually rotate. They rotate and rotate and rotate. And he says, sooner or later, those those two little holes are going to line up sooner or later. And when they do, there's going to be an explosion of light. And he says, that's what a person is like. That's what a human being is like. They have an interior life and they have an exterior life. Sooner or later, for a moment, may just be a moment, those two things are going to line up and, if a, and the light's going to get through and the person's going to have a flash. And uh, most of the time they'll, said, they'll say to themselves, well, this didn't really happen. I, I must be crazy. But then other times people say, wait a minute, what does this represent? This represents something that I have to investigate. I've never heard it put like that before. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's interesting. interesting way of looking at it. Um, Alan, thank you so much for doing this uh, uh, Sam it's lovely to talk to you I hope we meet in person one of these days well there it is a special thanks to Courtney Ott and Ryan Werner for helping arrange this interview you can see Arkin in the in-laws which recently got a blu-ray release from the Criterion Collection 
Also, if you're not doing so already, please be sure to check out BoJack Horseman. It is a brilliant, funny, tragic, and great show on Netflix. Lastly, a big thanks to Alan for taking the time to say, well, as much as he did on this podcast. Thanks, Alan. If you enjoyed what you just heard or have been enjoying the show, I'd love it if you consider giving us a review on iTunes. I know it's not an especially fun activity, but even just clicking those little stars at the top helps us reach new listeners. And I know that sounds silly, the idea of just clicking stars, but um, it, it works. It helps. So says Corey. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to say hello, talk shop, or just vent, feel free to do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. I promise I will respond in some fashion or another. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, our beautiful theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna. Social media by Maria Mayella. The show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. The Medal of Honor podcast is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. It's a special thing to be a member of Navy Federal because they're a member-owned, not-for-profit credit union that invests in their members with amazing rates and low fees. That's why members earn and save more every year. If you are active duty, a veteran, or have a family member who is a veteran or service member, you're eligible for membership. Become a Navy Federal member today. Navy Federal Credit Union. Members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.